Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 272 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Greek manuscript of the New Testament episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that uh, there is a Greek manuscript of the New Testament uh, on paper uh, assigned to the 16th century. And it is known as lectionary. 272. That's right, lectionary, not pictionary, or dictionary, but lectionary. Uh, and with that wonderful little bit of lectionary knowledge, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! How were you doing, Matthew? I noticed on social media not too long ago that it looks like you only have one class left. In school. Two classes, actually. Two classes. Two classes? Yes, two. Two. So I'll be taking uh, Spanish 3 during the first part of the summer and Spanish 4 during the second part of the summer, and then I'm done. Wow. How are you feeling about that? I don't know. I guess uh, I'll be glad to be out of school. Because I tell you what, if you do well in those two classes, you're going to be riding high for about three years afterwards, feeling like you accomplished something, not just graduating with a kick-ass degree, but your last two classes were absolute hell, you know, and you, 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 Matthew, Son of a bitch. you what? dominated them as any good daddy's boy would do, and you did that to those two classes. I have a feeling you're going somewhere with this, but that you got lost along the way. I did. All my BDSM knowledge just kind of went out the window. I was trying to figure out what was what, and yeah. (laughs) I want a little Madeline Kahn from Clue there. Flames. Flames on the side of my face. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so I'll be excited to get out of that and have something with which to go and find a real job. And, uh, you know, other than that, we'll see. We'll see what happens in the world of things that happen. Yeah, that's it's fun and exciting. I, I'm looking forward to that. Well, I've been excited to share with you something. Um, Matthew, uh, I recently moved, as we all know by now. Mm-hmm. And yes. I've, I have a lovely assortment of liquor stores and cool little bars nearby me. But I went to this sports bar type place, and on tap... They had your Deschutes beer, and I've so far had it like three times. So you you got to have the Black Butte Porter? Oh shit! That it was one in particular. No, no, it was the Deschutes seasonal, whatever whatever that was. Ah, no, I mean I've had uh, I I enjoy their Obsidian Stout. Uh, my favorite is the Black Butte Porter, of course, and um, I have not had their most recent seasonal. Um, that I know of, but there's like, there's, there's another one. I think they have a red that I like as well, but, uh, but Hey, at least you're, you know, Hey, it's nice that you're in the vicinity and I'm, and, and I appreciate that you thought of me. Exactly. I mean, just only for like a minute, but you know, it still counts, right? That's right. That's right. It sure does. (laughs) It sure does. You know, I understand that, uh, we're getting back to the news after our break away from, the news over the last couple of weeks. Um, you ready to do some news? Yes, I think we should. Well, then here we go, folks. It's 
the news. So, first up for me, I've got two news pieces today, uh, so I'm going to do one and then turn it over to Tim, and I thought I'd start off with something a little bit more serious, and then end on a lighter note. Uh, from TheVerge.com, by way of Tui Ong, uh, the Weinstein Company files for bankruptcy and ends prohibitive NDAs. Yes, that's right. So Weinstein Company has filed for bankruptcy. This uh, also is from March 20th. Uh, we are currently filming on the 20th, or filming, recording on the 26th. Uh, let's see here. Weinstein Company has filed for bankruptcy and ended all of its non-disclosure agreements. The company, which produced and distributed Hollywood films like Inglorious Bastards and Silver Linings Playbook, was co-founded by Harvey Weinstein, who has been accused of sexual misconduct dating back decades. More than 70 women have accused Weinstein of sexual harassment and assault since October, creating a global reckoning and sparking the hashtag MeToo movement. Uh, let's see here. It says that the Weinstein company has been looking for a buyer or investor for months and made a bankruptcy protection filing in a Delaware court. The company is listed between $500 million to $1 billion in liabilities, and the same amount in assets. So it is looking for what they refer to as a stalking horse bidder, uh, which is where that uh, bid is an initial setting bid, and it's a way for a company to maximize the value of its assets as part of the court-supervised auction. Uh, the film, and this is the most important part, the filing also includes an end to the prohibitive NDAs that Weinstein enforced on his victims. Quote, since October, it has been reported that Harvey Weinstein used non-disclosure agreements as a secret weapon to silence his accusers. Effective immediately, those agreements end. Uh, end quote there, the company said in an emailed statement to Reuters. So, um, and there's, there's a little bit more to that article. I bounced around within that article. So please, please, please read the whole article. It's pretty short. Uh, from TheVerge.com by way of Tui Ong. The Weinstein Company files for bankruptcy and ends prohibitive NDAs. Now, here's, before I turn this over to you, Tim, for comments and questions and concerns, um, there was a lot of hubbub, um, when this, when this dropped. It actually, the initial story was broke, uh, broken as an exclusive by, uh, uh, by deadline. Uh, this kind of encapsulates it a little bit better, uh, which is why I chose the Ver, the Verge article. Um, so, the idea here, because people were getting upset, like, I mean, the company isn't in trouble, and now they're using bankruptcy to shield themselves from corporate liability, you know, so basically, like, bad corporation being bad, right? You know, you're you're bad and you should feel bad kind of a thing. When in doubt, quote Zoidberg. Anyway, um, the the, but the thing is, is that, this was more of a defensive move for the NDAs and to prevent the degradation of what they had left. Because you'll notice in the article, it did point out that they've got between 500 million and a billion dollars in liabilities, but that they currently have the, roughly the same amount in assets. So technically, they're not underwater yet. They're still kind of treading water. But they have no way to make money because nobody wants to touch them with a 10-foot pole. 
So rather than try to rebrand and at the same time actually release people from all their NDAs because the company dissolves as it stands in this particular form of bankruptcy proceeding, now all the other people who haven't been able to say anything can. So it it was a bit of a preemptive move, yes, for corporation to protect the corporation, but this is one of those rare instances where kind of everybody wins, well, except for Harvey Weinstein, because, well, he's a douchebag. Um, and now the company gets to protect itself. Um, all the current projects, all the stuff that they have that people can now, I guess, feel better about enjoying them again, and all the stuff going forward that would have been produced um, now has a shot of getting made whenever it is assigned to the new buyer. And, of course, all of the people who have been silenced are now no longer legally obligated to remain so. Uh, Tim, to you, sir. Questions, comments, concerns, anything that you saw or noted about this issue? Good. I, I'm glad once all this stuff came to light, they di it wasn't easy for them to just change the name and, you know, kind of make a transition to something different, a different company or whatever. I'm glad sure. they're having to defend themselves in such a way, whether it be through litigation, through NDAs, all this junk. But I will say this. I find it hard to believe that they're not making substantial amounts of money from, like, home video releases. How do you mean? They've put out some very popular movies over the years. Therefore, they should be getting residuals. Right. Well, of that's, home video again, releases. They're not, strictly speaking, they're just breaking even, right? If yeah. I've got a million dollars in debt, but I'm worth a million dollars, right? Strictly speaking, I'm, I'm not worth anything, but I'm not in debt either. Right. Because I would be able to pay myself off. But then who's still getting the money? I kind of wonder too. Is oh, whoever, Weinstein whoever still buys the company? Whoever ends up buying the assets is the one who's going to get the, who's going to take that. Yeah. So basically, if I mean the easiest one, right? Disney, because Disney buys everything. So let's just say Disney buys the Weinstein company as well. Um, then Weinstein company is dissolved. It is no more. And then Disney starts collecting that money. So. I mean, yes, I guess, strictly speaking, they are bringing in money now, but they don't have enough momentum from even what they're bringing in from the residuals to cover their costs, let alone be able to move forward. And, I mean, it's kind of a good thing as well, uh, because this, while the company isn't in trouble, the people who are associated with the company who didn't do anything, right? Because much like... um Every studio has a finance department or has a production department or has a prop department. You know, Weinstein Company has all these things. And why do these three or 4,000 people need to be vilified? Because they happen to work for a company whose founder, owner, co-owner, whatever, is a piece of shit. Right. Well, it's also important to note that Weinstein Company is not at all a production studio. It's not like Universal, Sony, or anything like that. So they don't have crews or anything like that. In fact, I mean, well, I mean Sony doesn't even they, have, they have I guess, I, I'm sorry. I was just trying to say that there's more than Harvey Weinstein and his brother and six guys in a boardroom. Okay, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean it is a, it is a full, it is a full, fully fledged corporation. And they have multiple offices all over the place. So. Exactly. Offices and departments within them that have literally nothing to do with that. And yet they will suffer they would have suffered 
through layoffs and all this other kind of stuff. Now, at least with a buyout of this magnitude, while the company still has value in terms of its assets, not its name, the people who are there have just as much of a chance to either maintain themselves because if it becomes bought out by a separate entity who says, well, we want to make this into something else instead of just strictly absorbing it, they have a better chance of keeping their jobs outright. So yeah. that's also good. Well, I am going to move on to my piece of news via the insider.com or I fucking love science. Penis facials are the strangest new beauty trend celebrities are obsessed with. And yes, you read that right. This here is written by Rosie McCall, again, brought to you by IFL Science, and it was published on March 21st. And it says this. The weird beauty practices of the Hollywood elite have become so bizarre they sound like parodies of themselves. Think bird poo and placenta facials, snake venom eye cream, and being stung by bees. Yet the latest trend manages to take those things one step further. Kate Blanchett credits her youthful glow to a treatment that uses the foreskins of Korean newborn babies, aka a penis facial. <laughs> Quote, we saw this facialist in New York, Georgia Louise, and she gives what we call the penis facial. In quote, Blanchett told Vogue Australia, quote, it's something I don't know what it is or whether it's just because it smells a bit like sperm. There's some enzyme in it. So Sandy refers to it as the penis facial, end quote. The Sandy she refers to here is her Ocean's 8 co-star Sandra Bullock, a woman who is not new to the world of unusual anti-aging treatments. After all, she regularly applies hemorrhoid cream to her under-eye area to reduce puffiness. Honey, that's something that Sandra Bullock and I both have in common. Not... But back to the penis facial. What exactly does this special treatment involve? Well, first of all, it's not really called a penis facial. On the company website, it goes by a far more palatable name, the Hollywood EGF facial. <laughs> it involves a cleanse, an intensive TCA peel, micro-needling, an electrifying mask, and finally, FDA-approved epidermal growth factor EGF serum. Quote, EGF is derived from the progenitor cell, <laughs> progenitor, progenitor, yeah, I'll go with progenitor, progenitor cells of the human fibroblast taken from Korean newborn baby foreskin, which helps to generate collagen and elastin, Louise explained. So the EGF used in the treatment comes from skin cells produced in a lab. Quote, FDA-approved stem cells and peptides are penetrated deep into the skin using a special electric micro-needling wand. This process allows the active ingredients to be transported deep in the skin by creating temporary micro-channel. End quote. It all sounds very sciencey, but how effective is it really? 
Stem cell use is fairly widespread in the cosmetic industry. However, it is usually in cream form and the cells have less icky origins. They tend to be plant-based. The theory goes that adding stem cells to the dermal layer rejuvenates skin because it is effectively introducing new tissue, thus making one's complexion appear younger. The process is also thought to release chemicals that aid aging cells, again, making them appear younger. The article does go on from there, and it ends with the following... Anyway, with a two-year waiting list in each session costing $650 a pop, you probably couldn't get an appointment even if you wanted to. Yes, end all quotes there. Again, that was from uh, I Fucking Love Science. Penis facials are the strangest new beauty trends celebrities are obsessed with. And yes, you read that right. Written by Rosie McCall. Matthew, if you could afford this... $650 penis facial treatment. Would you consider it? Go! No. Really? Look, I, I can appreciate that. Um, is is Jen there? To... Can you ask Jen? Um, sure. <laughs> so, hey, Jen, we, we would like to include you in our show. All right. Um, yes, that's, there you go. 272. Seven years later. And the wife says, sure. Um, okay, so would. If there was a really good facial cream um, and that was guaranteed to increase the collagen and the elasticity in your face so good that it cost $650 and you had the money, would you do it? If I had the money? If you had the money. Okay. Would you still do it once you found out that it was made from penises? No. No. Are you sure? Like circumcised penises, like the circumcised skin that's in a lab, and then they would use that. For, then, from a Korean baby. From a Korean baby. So they're not American. They're not American penises. No, she does not want to walk around with penises on her face. Must be a racist thing. Tim says you're racist. <laughs> <laughs> We would have gone with sexist, but once I said they were Korean, you still said no. So now it's racist. <laughs> so, so I guess the answer to Tim's response would be yes. Do you want penises on your face, Tim? She seems to think that the way you're phrasing the question means that you want to have penis facials. No, I'm good. I can just give it to myself, but without the foreskin. <laughs> He says that he can just give it to himself, but without the foreskin. <laughs> and my wife, ladies and gentlemen. So, I mean, we've heard of, again, like all these crazy trends of the bird crap, the placenta facials, which I, I heard something about the placenta facial before. I, and, and I always thought that was the most disgusting. Like that was pushing it too far. I do think... This is, in fact, pushing it too too far. I mean, would you rather have a placenta facial or a penis facial? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not playing this game. This is like the worst version of would you rather. Um, No, I just... No, I... I, um, I can't see myself in a scenario where I would say yes to either one of those. 
I mean, it could be no, the, the, no. The second one was sexist because he asked me if I wanted a placenta facial instead. What do you want? Which one do you want? She's shaking her head no as well, and she's had three <laughs> kids. So you'd think if anybody would be down, uh, you know. Oh. Oh, you can make vitamins from a placenta. So maybe she would rather have the vitamin, the, the vitamin, the placenta vitamins. Well, they do say apparently that uh, a lot of people save the placenta and they make placenta smoothies. Oh yes, I have heard about people who eat the placenta as well. I'm pretty sure we've already discussed like this on the show. I'm sure we have. Can we talk uh, about yeah. placenta smoothies? It's, it sounds. Who knows? That might. I mean, just just uh, search our, our search search the titles. <laughs> that I sounds know, right? like it would have made it as a title. <laughs> Placenta smoothies. Pacific rim job uh, facial. I don't know. That'll, that'll probably come in the title. Some Come in placenta, the title. Placenta rim jobs and penis facials. There you go. Or Pacific rim job two, the penis facial. <laughs> anyway. Uh, done. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we really can't travel anywhere else with that article. So what do you got next? All right. Well, I'm going to end my news on, like I said, a very nice... Uh, happy note uh, from carandriver.com by way of Rich uh, Sepos. Uh, this is the courtesy of the March 2018 of Car and Driver. Steve McQueen's bullet movie Mustang suddenly reappeared. This is how it happened. Now, it's quite. this is actually quite a considerable read. So what I would like to do is simply just kind of recap it a little bit and, and highly, highly encourage you to read this whole story because it is amazing. Basically, <clears throat> um, Sean Kier- uh, Kiernan, all right, inherited the bullet from his late father. Now, his father, Bob, had actually purchased it um, in 1974 to replace their, to replace the family's only car, which was an old MGB GT. Now, in 1974, movie cars were not that big of a deal. And so it, th- there was no issue in provenance or anything like that. It was just, oh, well, okay, cool. It's just an old movie car. And well, it sounds neat. So he ends up having it and, and they just keep it. And it didn't, didn't dawn on them. They used to drive it around all the time. They, you know, it was driven around just like the family car. Um, and it took about 10 years. Uh, before they realized that people were looking for it. And then when they did that, they like parked it because they're like, Oh, we don't want people to steal it. Um, or people to be bothering us with it. And, and the car was getting older at that point and that needed to have some restoration work done. Um, in, in point of fact, thankfully the restoration work was never done, but, uh, I digress. So we come to about like two or three years ago. Fast forward two or three years ago, um, you know, Bob has passed away. Sean has the car. Sean knows he has the car. They have a letter from Steve McQueen before he passed away asking Bob if he could buy the car back, to which obviously Bob said no. Um, and this guy that he works with was like, an, he's an amateur filmmaker, okay? And he had just gotten some funding to start production on a, on a script. And so here's this guy, Sean talking to his buddy and the guy's like, um, you know, man, 
you you wouldn't happen to know anybody who has like an old Mustang, right? And Sean's like, well, I don't know. I mean, what what would you be looking for it for? And he's like, I want to make a movie about some kids who go and steal a car because they think it's the bullet car. And then it turns out it actually is the bullet car. And so Sean, on a whim, finally just breaks down after basically 40 years of silence in, in his family, 40 years of silence. He goes, huh, well, why don't you come use my car? <laughs> and they're like, what? He's like, yeah, I've got the actual bullet car. And from there, it takes like, it takes like something like two years for everything to get established so that they can, you know, prove the provenance of the vehicle. Everything has to be, um, you know, 100% authenticated. And thankfully, they never did, they never finished the restoration. They had actually had the car in, uh, in pieces, but put it back together. Um, they did do a little bit of mechanical work just to make sure that it was running. But yeah, so the paint's still dulled. It's kind of chipped. It still has the actual motor mounts for the cameras. Um, it's got the Warner Brothers sticker on the, on the car and they ended up showing it off, uh, at the, um, at the Ford, uh, 2019, uh, showcase. So basically, hey, these are all the cars that we're going to be, you know, having come out in 2019. And we've redesigned our, our Ford Mustang to actually look like, the bullet car. Oh, and by the way, here's the original bullet car. And you can like hear this reverence because they have the video in the article. You can, there's just like this reverence that hap- that just falls over the crowd as the car comes driving up. And they didn't even have the car insured. So Sean had to go and get this car insured. And nobody knows what they got it insured for, but more than likely they estimate like in the neighborhood of $4 million. Um, and it's like, this is an amazing story. It is probably one of the most famous cars. Right. Ever. And for years they thought it was lost for years. They thought, I mean, and they finally, but it's completely authenticated. And, um, at one point they actually had it secreted away to the Ford Motor Facility in Detroit so that they could actually, um, or out in Michigan, maybe it wasn't in Detroit proper, but out in Michigan, so that it could be kept um, away from prying eyes while they were waiting for everything to get locked down. So it's a great read. Um, it's a pretty extensive story. It's got the video of the showcase from Ford, so you can actually see them drive it up and everything. Um, Steve McQueen's granddaughter is the one who is actually there to talk about it and introduce the vehicle yeah so check that out seriously carandriver.com by way of rich sepos steve mcqueen's bullet movie mustang suddenly reappeared this is how it happened i don't know tim is that not cool i think it's just amazing it's like a 40 year old mystery that is now officially solved oh it's awesome how many times are we gonna see versions of the old adam west batmobile you know, I see those driving around L.A. every once in a while. People make make their own mock versions. Mm-hmm. And it's cool and everything. How often do you actually see the Steve McQueen car? It's very difficult because it's not a superhero car. You know, it has like a specific look and feel and, and a specific sound to it. And you have to get that really cool green. Ca- I mean, it, it's just an iconic looking car because it's difficult to duplicate that car now because of what the car is. And right. I think that's awesome. It's 
probably more famous or more popular or in higher demand than the Adam West Batman car. It's more appreciated than the Knight Rider car because, again, those were all very specific looking cars that you can modify to look like how they did in the movie and whatnot. Because this one is a hot rod. You know, it has a specific look and feel to it. And I guess it's the same with the DeLorean because... You can't really... I mean, how often can you find a freaking DeLorean in a in a junkyard or anything like that? I don't know. Is the Bullet Ford one of your top five Hollywood movie cars? Well, I'm, I'm kind of weird. My my One of my first loves growing up was the A-Team. So I wanted an A-Team van. And I would probably be just as happy with an A-Team van or a kit car, right? Um, I would also love a uh, Firebird, right? Uh, or I'm sorry, Trans Am, Smokey and the Bandit. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I don't know. I, 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 def- I don't know if it would make my top five. It would definitely make top ten. Yeah. Full show. Full and for show. those of you not familiar with Bullet, the car is known for being a part of one of the best car chase scenes ever made. I mean, when it comes to filmmaking, that car chase scene was revolutionary because, you know, it, it wasn't like James Bond that relied a lot on quick cuts and explosions and car tricks. This was like, you know, people were wowed about the car tricks and, and Baby Driver because they felt so real. Well, this was the cool Baby Driver movie of that time. And as an added bonus, Bullet is also one of those movies that is very limited in its score uh, and is also credited with um, helping establish real police procedural uh, aspects in a film. McQueen was uh, uh, very strongly pushing successfully for the actual way a cop would go about an investigation. Um, so... It's it's got a lot of realism in it, and then of course a truly real car chase. And I like the suburban garage where the guy kept the car in too. The picture that they have here on that site just looks like a freaking garage that belongs to a random house in the suburbs of Houston somewhere. You know. <laughs> All right, so uh, my next few pieces of news, uh, I'm gonna kind of brush through two of the three pretty quick. But I mentioned one of these pieces to Matt earlier, and I know he probably has a couple things to say about it. First up, from Kansas Public Radio, KPR, Hooray for Hollywood in Ottawa, Kansas. March 23rd, 2018 was the date that this was published, and it says this. The Plaza Cinema in Ottawa, Kansas has been named the oldest purpose-built Cinema in operation by Guinness World Records. The Deco-styled downtown movie theater opened at 211 South Main Street on May 22, 1907 and still shows current-run movies. The Plaza's record beat the previous record holder, the Corsor Biograph in Denmark, which opened in August 1908 by more than a year. According to a news release from the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism, Plaza Cinema owner Rita Peach 
Metal has spent years collecting evidence to secure the record ever since archivist Deborah Barker, who recently retired from the Ottawa Historical Society, uncovered a trove of photographs that indicated the theater was already operating in Ottawa's early horse and buggy days. Metal Barker and film historian Bill Schaefer compiled and authenticated evidence using documents, news reports, and photographs from the Franklin County Courthouse, Franklin County Historical Society, and Ottawa Library, all in Ottawa, Kansas, in newspapers.com, an online database. Um, and it uh, goes on from there talking about how convincing Guinness of the authenticity of the theater was a daunting task. Uh, it took a long time and a lot of documentation to prove the cinema's 111-year history. Uh, so if you're interested in reading more about it, do check it out over at Kansas Public Radio KPR's website, Hooray for Hollywood in Ottawa, Kansas. Uh, and it's written by the KPR staff. Next up, from TheGuardian.com. Uh, ooh, I don't have it here, but I think it's TheGuardian.co.uk. Something or other. But The Guardian, man who died after getting trapped in cinema seat, named as Atif Rafiq. Yes, Rafiq, who is 24 years old, suffered cardiac arrest after attempting to retrieve his phone at a screening at N. Birmingham Multiplex. Uh, this is written by staff and agencies and published on March 21st. It says this. The man who died after his head became wedged under the electronic footrest of a cinema seat has been named as Atif Rafiq, he was 24. In a statement from operator Vu International, the cinema said Rafiq died on March 16th, a week after the incident. An investigation into the accident at the Vu Cinema in Birmingham's Star City Leisure Complex on March 9th is continuing. Sources quoted in the Birmingham Mail described how the, quote, freak, end quote, accident happened after Rafiq bent down to retrieve a phone dropped between gold class seats at the end of a movie Rafiq who was with his wife was only freed after the footrest was broken by those trying to help West Midlands Ambulance Service confirmed it was called to reports of a patient in cardiac arrest Cruz managed to restart Rafiq's heart and he was taken to the city Heartlands Hospital. In a statement, VU International said, quote, Following an incident which took place on Friday, March 9th at our Birmingham Cinema, we can confirm that a customer was taken to hospital that evening. We are saddened to learn that he passed away on Friday, March 16th. And it goes on a little bit from there. Again, a man by the name of Atif Rafiq passed away after getting trapped in a cinema seat. Via TheGuardian.com. Uh, before I go into the Spielberg bit of news, uh, Matt, what do you think about the Guinness confirmed oldest theater in the U.S. in Ottawa, Kansas, and about this dude, Atif Rafiq, who, who died after getting stuck or trapped in a seat? I mean, it's sad. It is definitely an ignoble way to go. It's sad at the same time that it's got a funny tagline, but stranger, I mean, stranger things have happened. So, I mean, it's definitely weird. In terms of the oldest cinema, I think that's really cool. Maybe, maybe one day, you know, I noticed you had put something out about it on Twitter, and that might be a fun road trip someday. Go see the oldest, go see a flick at the oldest cinema in the U.S. I would like that. Sure. Hopefully, they're not playing like a Tyler Perry movie, because <laughs> that's one of those things where it's like, well, shit, we have to go see it. I guess. Uh, pardon me. That wasn't <laughs> the oldest 
theater in uh, the U.S., but in fact, the oldest continuously working theater in the world, uh, which is pretty, pretty cool. Lastly here, via Deadline Hollywood, Steven Spielberg says Netflix movies shouldn't win Oscars, warns TV poses clear and present danger to filmgoers. This here is written by Dade Hayes, and it was published just on uh, March 25th. It says this, Even while promoting his futuristic high-tech movie Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg is revealing his traditionalist streak, questioning the level playing field between theatrical features and films launched on Netflix and other streaming services. During his five-decade directing career, as innovations from DVD commentary tracks to digital cameras and projectors have arisen, the filmmaker has often questioned the need to veer from the classical approach. There are positive results of this reverence for tradition, including Spielberg's work on a range of preservation causes and other efforts to strengthen the legacy of Hollywood, but the largest target of his skepticism is feature films that launch on streaming services like Netflix and Amazon are the latest target of his skepticism. His views and those of fellow filmmakers like Chris Nolan are not new, but are getting fresh attention as he makes the publicity rounds. In an interview with ITV News, Spielberg noted that the movie business has never faced more of a challenge from TV, especially given the rise of streaming. While there are benefits from that to the overall culture, he said features launched on streaming platforms should not be allowed at the Oscars saying, quote, I don't believe that films that are given token qualifications in a couple of theaters for less than a week should qualify for Academy Award nominations. Once you commit to a television format, you are TV movie. If it's a good show, you deserve an Emmy, but not an Oscar, end quote. Movie studios who once took chances on fringe indie fare they discovered at film festivals, he said, are focused on branded temples, and filmmakers are able to find willing buyers in the SVOD world, fundamentally changing the game. Quote, television is thriving with quality and heart, but it poses a clear and present danger to filmgoers, end quote. Reflecting on his previous film outing, he expressed no regret Quote, I'll still make the post and ask an audience to please go out to the theaters and see the post and not make it for Netflix, end quote, he says. End all quotes there for this article. Again, there is a full eight-minute discussion and interview in this article. Again, that was via Deadline Hollywood. Steven Spielberg says Netflix movies shouldn't win Oscars. Warns TV poses clear and present danger to filmgoers. Matt, what, what do you think about this? Uh, respectfully, I disagree. Um, he's he, he is one of the most talented filmmakers um, the world has known. And he, I think, better than most, understands the value of cinema. But I... Um, but I don't think he appreciates the fact that much of his standing is due to uh, the longevity of his of his films that longevity only occurs because it's not in the movie theater anymore somebody watched it at home on video somebody watched it on cable or on network television and they went wow what a great movie or 
hey, son, daughter, you know, why don't you come and watch this great uh, alien movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Hey, why don't you watch this great movie about uh, archaeology? Or perhaps, as was the case when I was in school, uh, hey, here's a great movie that's really important about the Holocaust, and we should have discussions about it. Let's watch it at school. Every step of the way, Steven Spielberg has been bolstered, not by the fact that his movies are good, but by his movies have a longevity that can only be granted by home viewing. Basically, by watching it on TV. That doesn't negate the value of cinema in and of itself, but it does lend credence to the fact that you can have something just as powerful at home as you can in a theater. And I think that's where the big disconnect comes nowadays. But he is saying that he's comparing movies that were made for the theater and movies made for Netflix. Cool. Whereas, Give me one person under the age of 20. No, but, but it was. But what I'm saying... Who has seen any of his movies... As in those were made to be released in the theater... Therefore, that's great. Therefore, so, the product. But then watching it at home, it the production is still there. You're watching it at home. That's I don't. To me, cool. He's not saying that everything like movies should be seen at the theater. He's saying that if you're solely making a movie for it to be shown on Netflix, it's going to have a different air to it. It's a made-for-TV movie. Just because bullshit. you just huh? It's bullshit. That's that is that is factually incorrect. You can't sit there and say that I made this movie, I made Close Encounters of the Third Kind to be this grand spectacle, and therefore it is something that cannot be replicated on the TV. But the thing is, they're and not, get, they're not the going time, to replicate it on TV. But you, but you are, and they have, and it's been done. Like If you're talking about like a miniseries, of course. Netflix has not. I'm not talking about the movies that Netflix has distributed, because like Mudbound was a great movie, and unfortunately Netflix takes the credit for it because they're the ones who bought the movie after it was already made and distributed it, and a, a handful of others. But if you compare the quality of those movies to other movies that Netflix has made, it's significantly different. That doesn't. But that doesn't negate. The, the probability of something being made if I if I've got a hundred if I've got a hundred and fifty million dollars and I go make a hundred and fifty million dollar movie with all the best visuals and all the best and all the trimmings and the good actors and the actresses and a great production team then it arguably has just as much of a chance of being successful in the movie theater as it does in a home viewing scenario, i.e. streaming, i.e. Blu-ray, i.e. what have you. The movie itself is good. And it's just that you people like, like Spielberg, people like Nolan, refuse to understand that the way people view their entertainment has fundamentally shifted. And instead of filling the void of, of giving a valid reason for the spectacle of a movie to be the key, they're just simply saying, 
well, no, no, it's just, you know, it's not, it's not the same because it's not the same level of storytelling. Bullshit. It is the same level of storytelling because if it wasn't the same level of storytelling, the theaters wouldn't be getting their ass kicked right now. Well, you want to say, you want to say spectacle? You want to give me a reason to give spectacle? I'll have that discussion with you. But just because I went and spent $200 million for Netflix doesn't mean that I, um, that, that I am automatically now not worthy of, of the same level of respect or audience choice or viewing capability that a movie would get. And quite frankly, if Netflix is willing to spend $50 million to buy Mudbound and make sure that 400 million people go see it, then I think Netflix is on the right track because a movie like Mudbound would not make $300 million in the theater. It's not going to get 400 million people to go watch it. Six of one, half a dozen of the other in terms of storytelling, but not spectacle. But as of right now, what Netflix makes, their original content for movies is not that great. Like, the issue with Netflix is that, yeah, you say, we want to make movies that audiences like. So they're going to pander to some audiences. Now, does that mean that's the right thing to do? Because that's how we got that movie bright. Yeah, the terrible movie that's getting a sequel. Yeah, oh, I know. for sure. And, and I don't disagree with you. I don't think, I, I fundamentally, I don't disagree with the idea of something being a spectacle, something that really and truly is made to be seen on a 50-foot screen. I understand the idea of spectacle, but that's not the sole purpose of movie making, and it's not the sole purpose of movies. And when you're asking people to spend 20 bucks a pop to go see it, it's simply untenable. Oh, yeah, but for, I'm not for, I'm not even for them to, for them to do that. And I'm so, not and I'm not at all isolating the spectacle films from this at all. But it's, but, but Spielberg is and Nolan is. And that's the whole thing. They're sitting there saying that if it's not if it's not made for the movie theater, then it doesn't count. That's not true. Right, but the a but, movie a movie can be more than spectacle. Right, but and it spectacle to- but what you're saying with spectacle, just to make sure we're on the same page, he's not talking about a movie like Indiana Jones or Star Wars. By spectacle, what he is what I was quoting him, at least here, he was just talking about what we consider to be a movie theater movie, and it can be any movie theater movie. It could be Shape of Water. It could be what Manchester Mudbound. by the Sea. It could sure. be it could be Mudbound, which okay. it was in the theater. At least it was in the theater out right. here. Been there for two weeks. It had to be because well, right, yeah, that's for the for Oscars. the right, exactly. But like out here, and I think in New York and a handful of other places, Mudbound was in the theater for a while, for a little while, and I had the choice to choose. Do I go and see it at Netflix on Netflix or do I go see it at the movie theater? And with that, Netflix realized that they had something special, that they acquired a very special movie and took a note out of Amazon's book to keep it out in the theater. But then at the same time, they let the movie stream on, on Netflix because when they left it in the theater, they really didn't have it in, in many theaters at all, especially well, for over to. two weeks. Well, sure, Netflix does to. not need way, to. I'm- and and I, I'm not I personally am not singling out Netflix in this scenario. Anybody, any streaming voodoo, uh Hulu, Amazon, uh movies anywhere, whatever, I don't care. All of that to me count HBO, 
um, stars, whatever. So Disney Channel, for all I give a shit. Um, if, if they make a movie and it is something that is worthy of contention, then it is something that is worthy of contention. Um, I think that if you want to, I think if you want to make a specific rule for Oscar consideration that it must be in a theater for two weeks, then fine. Um, it has to be in XYZ number of cities, uh, then also fine. If you want to make that the, you know, it's your award, it's your thing, make the awards and your rules the way that you want for that contention. But on the whole, this, I mean, it, and that's it, what it's he, self-defeating. His well, whole argument is self-defeating. But but it, he is saying that because already that is the thing. It has to be in the theater for two weeks. But people are now saying that, oh, that's stupid. We should just not have it because we can, you know, Netflix has all these movies that they're not going to put in theaters. Why keep those movies from having any potential, if they deserve potential or not, of, of receiving an Academy Award? Spielberg knows there's already a two-week limit, and he is fine with that. He was also commenting on the idea of doing away with that two-week limit and at least having the opportunity for having the movie at the theater because you never know. I mean, look at Manchester by the Sea. Manchester by the Sea made, what, 40-some-odd million at the theater before it was even released on Amazon Prime? Like, it was in the theater for a a few months, I think. And same with The Big Sick. The Big Sick was an Amazon movie, and it was released in the theater, and it made some money. So, I mean, if anything, the studio, the production company, might even benefit from it, because it might actually turn out to be a movie theater hit. I don't know. I mean, I I, I just think it's interesting that a guy whose career is as good as it is because of... Uh, of people watching their watching his movies in the home they because you can't go back and see the movie in the theater anymore you know i mean there's got to be some kind of transition and that well they've been doing those like exists. the fathom events thing i i understand that there is the potential for the possibility to go see a movie like a, a classic film through fathom events or what have you in the cinema uh, and and that's great. I am glad that they have those opportunities out there. I can't wait for. I I really think that my oldest daughter is is finally at that age where we could go do those kinds of things now. And I can't wait to do that stuff and and really help grow that and help teach a little bit of the majesty of cinema. All that stuff is great. Um, I really enjoyed. When I went and saw The Hateful Eight and I saw the 70mm Roadshow version of that. I mean, you know, with the programs and the intermission and uh, and the overture and all that kind of stuff. Again, things for spectacle. Things to really give you the vibe of why it's important to go see a movie. And what can separate movie going from movie viewing. I'm all about it. And I'm not saying, and I'm not suggesting that we should just abandon movie theaters entirely. But on the same token, I I, I don't see how... Uh, there's Well, it's this- a self-defeating proposition. There's no way for someone... There's just... There's, there's not enough time in the day to go to the movie theater for every movie that you think should be something that should only be in the movie theater. But also, and this is really the last thing to say about it, because there's a lot more to it than just the idea, the novelty, I guess. And I, I would rather see a movie at the theater opposed to watching it on Netflix. 
Other than that, though, it's also the business. Because with Netflix is trying to be a movie studio. It's trying to be its own company. It's trying to be its own thing. Well, movie studios, movie companies, they hire people. And you have people that work on movies that don't necessarily or are unable to necessarily work on Netflix movies. And we're talking about top-tier, high-quality professionals that cannot work on a Netflix movie because they don't pay enough. And also, that's kind of going down another avenue of, of I guess, production and even union standards, even. And then so, with the production, you either get people who are inexperienced, or you get people that deserve to be higher paid taking less than what they should because apparently that's Netflix's production model. And I okay. think deep down that's what bugs me. They're running things come to be on. efficient and Okay, you know what? That but but what you What do you mean come is, on? It's totally I'm, it's true. Here's what here's what here's what here's what you're sidestepping an issue that was created by the by the movie industry uh, in and of itself. You I mean come on. But I mean, Netflix let's, isn't even, let's they're not even wanting it. to, they're not even, see, they're worried okay. about themselves. They're not even wanting to like, do anything Back about still it. hasn't made a dime. Tell me more about how Empire Strikes Back still hasn't made a dime. Tell me more about how everything is always done on the gross instead of the net because people who get, st- who get scored against points on the net never make money because movies never make money because they're designed to run through production companies and outsourced secondary tier shell companies that always collect the fees against the, against the production cost of the film. Dude, I, know, I used to work in finance for Sony. So, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying, but it's it's different. It's it, there's more. There's definitely more to that shit than, than I what understand. You're saying. But at the end of the day, so it's okay for one side to do it, but it's not okay and fail. And like everybody's talking about how they're struggling, they're the, they're not making as much money. It's but the thing, but the thing with franchise, but, but the thing with Netflix the people working seeding. in production, they're not on this. They're not getting paid by the studio. They're getting paid by the actual movie production. The studio doesn't own the special effects people. The studio doesn't own but the prop sure people. they sure hire them out, don't they? No, they don't. No. Okay. Who hires who? Who hires the company? So Universal. You, so okay. Let's, so let's, my, let's, my let's uncle. My uncle's a prop master. The Universal greenlit a movie. They they the next sure, Marvel movie. Green, yeah. Okay. They need, they need set builders. They need carpenters. They need people that do the interior phone for sculpting and making all these crazy sets. Well, there's sure as shit not a department. They have to go out and hire people. They bring in a company to come in and work. Yeah, you have some people like at Sony with the sound engineers. We have sound engineers and mixers, but they no. get paid by the productions that come in. They get paid by the productions that they work on. Right. So, but what I'm saying is, is that, so in point of fact, Universal, and again, well, so Universal gets a new Space Monster movie and the budget's a hundred million dollars. So it's been greenlit. This project gets a hundred million dollars. So Universal now says, all right, here's a hundred million dollars to, uh, this production company to go and make this movie. Now this hundred, this, this new production company has to go and hire the prop masters or the other uh, production company assets, the camera people and the uh, and the PAs and the catering and the VFX crews. Sure. And so and so, they only have their hundred million dollars to parcel out, and so that hundred million dollars is then 
paid out to, you know, actors and agents, blah, blah, blah. And with whatever's left, now we got to start doing that kind of stuff. Well, it's just like when we watched that documentary on the VFX community and how they kept having to move across the, the country and then subsequently across the world to go and land in a place with a tax credit so that they could get hired. And they'd open that satellite office so that they could get hired. And they'd move that satellite sure, office so that yeah, they could and, get Sure, yeah, and stuff like that is, is still happening despite tax credits. That's that's in the existing in that that's in the existing world of the of the Hollywood studio system. That's that's the existing world there. But so there's still there is no but. That's what's happening there, and but, and they are struggling. Oh, and then here's another company like but, Amazon who's doing really well, or Netflix, or uh, you know Hulu. Okay, God bless I, them. They're still making it. Okay, I don't think um, we're going to get anywhere with side. this. Seriously, my my okay. My uncle's a prop master. Been a prop master for years. He will that. he will never unless he absolutely has to work on a show for Netflix. Unless he absolutely has to because he doesn't make any money. Enough. Excuse me? They don't pay enough. Because they, they don't pay enough. They don't pay enough. The schedule sucks. They have uh, uh, what shows? Certain shows are only uh, you know uh, ten episodes. Even their thirty-minute shows are ten episodes. The schedules are wonky. They, you just don't get paid enough, and you have to do everything in half the time. I mean, this is it's I, it's widely known. I mean, even with writing, it's I mean, you hear about it with the writers. The writers have hard time, uh, have difficult I'm times in that saying, place. Well. Uh, look, I'm not saying I'm not saying that you know. Um, Tough shit for people like your uncle. Right. No, I know that. But what I'm saying is that it's significantly different for Netflix than it is with other studio shows, you know, on a network. You know, it's the same thing even with HBO. I mean, HBO is kind of the same as Netflix since they have limited shows that don't run 22 uh, episodes. You know, they don't pay as much. The same thing applies. But the thing with Netflix is that net there's more to Netflix. And yet they're wanting to stay on the level of like hbo whereas hbo is known for going out and making do they still make yeah they still make i get movies, it look but yeah they do yeah they have hbo original movies they do yeah and and i'm not look I, i'm not trying to turn this into a big huge thing and I, and I realize we've gone you know way off course so i'm happy to end it here as well i just think it's i just think that at the end of the day um there there is one side of this uh, of the movie making business that is struggling Okay, and we can go into the hows and whys uh, uh, some other time. And then we have another side of the entertainment industry in the streaming world that is thriving. And does that make one absolutely right and one absolutely wrong? I am happy to say no. There are there there is room for compromise, and there is room for um, you know to find a happy medium, but. Neither side has a premium on what's available for people to go and see, especially when you only when you have the most finite resource of all time at 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 play, and people want to be able to see movies when and how they want to be able to see movies, and I think we can all agree on that. Sure, I have my thumb. I have my thumb up and everything. <laughs> we can all agree on that. So. Mm. All right. Well, having salvaged our first real debate in a few four or five months, 
I guess you want to go end the news and move to the movies. Yes, let's uh, let's uh, head over to these at least one high caliber movie. Let's do that. <laughs> Here we go, folks. It's the movie. <laughs> So we've got Pacific Rim, Uprising, and Thoroughbreds. Why don't we do Thoroughbreds? All right, starting on a high note, Thoroughbreds. I'm being foolish. It's the worst fake crying I've ever seen. She's just using the technique. The what? The technique. Holy... <clears throat> Uh, Amanda, this is my stepdad, Mark. How long are you here, Amanda? My mom's gonna pick me up around midnight. Midnight's late for us. I'll call your mom. She can come pick you up now. She's busy. Doing what? Chemotherapy. I don't have any feelings, ever. And that doesn't necessarily make me a bad person. It just means I have to work a little harder to be good. I'm sending you to boarding school. After that, you're off my payroll. You hate him. You despise him. Honey, you can't go in looking like that. I'm fine. I mean, just... I'm not going to have to stand here all day like a robot repeating myself. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. You ever think about just killing him? How would you? What the hell is he even doing here? I am providing you all with early drug experiences that you will forever cherish. Who the hell are you? <laughs> we have a business proposition for you. You got a gun? Yes, I have a gun. You don't know where I come from. Westchester. Amanda. You have no idea. I didn't think you'd bring it here. You want to hold it? No, thanks. Anyway, you cannot hesitate. The only thing worse than being incompetent or being unkind or being evil is being indecisive. Okay. Shall we? What am I going to tell my dad? Wear a hat. We're keeping this, by the way. All right. It is a 2017 American black comedy thriller film. It's written and directed by Corey Finley. Uh, it stars Olivia Cook, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Anton Yelchin in one of his final film roles, Paul Sparks and Francie Swift. Uh, what we have to here are two Connecticut upper-class chicks uh, would have formerly been known in, in another day and age as yuppies or... Um, uh, wasps, if you will. Uh, we've got, um, one, one girl uh, named Amanda who has basically, um, pure sociopath, you know, not psychopath, sociopath. Just doesn't, just has no feeling, doesn't care about anything. Uh, and then of course we have Lily. And, uh, to be clear, Amanda is played by Olivia Cook. Lily is played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, Lily is a popular girl, but also struggling in her own way to maintain her, I guess, her own outlook and self-worth, uh, and is also struggling not just to do that in her public life at school and with her friends, but also in a personal life with her stepdad, especially. Um, these two meet up, uh, because, well, 
Amanda's mom <laughs> pays off Lily to do it. Uh, and as they discover more about, um, um, Mark, uh, Lily's stepdad, um, they, they decide that perhaps maybe Mark doesn't deserve to be around anymore. Shenanigans ensue, and, uh, well, the movie does what movies do. Um, alright, so, for me, I thought that this movie was smart and funny. Um, and I am definitely going to miss Anton Yelchin even more now. Um, I thought that, uh, his portrayal of Tim was, um, was definitely very interesting. And, it was just the right amount of strung out bravado that <laughs> that makes uh that makes for a good tweaky um drug dealer who tries to impress um but the problem for me is that the movie ends up being smart to the point not to the point of hubris but beyond the point of being self-aware. And it knows, in, in other words, it knows it's being smart. It knows it's being clever. Ah, 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 you think you have the story. Oh, you think you understand these characters. Um, you know, it's got taglines uh, on the movie poster uh, in, the, uh, in the trailer about, you know, it's Heathers meets American Psycho and stuff like that. Um, well, if you've ever seen... Heathers or American Psycho, you understand that there are much, much deeper aspects to these movies. Not to mention that Heathers um, has more of a cult following than than anything else. Um, so I get the influences of the movie. I like the ideas behind the movie. And I think that the characterizations here are the strength, um, are, the, are the true strengths to be found in the film. The story itself, however, just comes across as I know, I know I'm clever and I know I'm smart and you're never going to figure this out until I tell you. So just quit trying it instead of just being smart and clever in a way that engages you and wants you to feel more. The story is, it just, I don't know. It, it smacks of. I don't, I, I'm trying to find the right word, and I'm I'm struggling to do it. Basically, I guess it just uh, um. It, it's too clever for its own good, but I still think the film is good, and I still think the film is worth watching. I give this one a three point two five out of five. Tim. What do you got, sir? How'd you find me? Asked around. Yes. That is so unprofessional. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't normally make a sale under these circumstances. Good thing you need the business. I don't need the business. Okay. Th this is a temporary gig. Fun. I have had to hustle everything that I have. You don't know where I come from. Westchester. If you have no idea, give me five, max, ten years, I will be running this game. All up the coast, I will be 
God. Yeah, creepy friend. I know. I thought this was smart and fun to watch unfold for the most part. And I found both of these characters very believable, which I think is a pretty difficult task to pull off for a movie like this. Because this movie is about, is character driven. It's very, very character driven. Because you really don't know what these characters are up to, but you know they are up to something. And unfortunately, the my main issue is... The reasoning for why... What are the two girls' names again? The two girls' names are Lily and Amanda. Lily is played by Anya Taylor-Joy, and then Amanda is played by Olivia, Olivia Cook. And Amanda's the one who uh, doesn't... You know, who doesn't care about anything. Right. Amanda, man. I she Olivia Cook played that pretty solidly, I thought. However, uh, again, my main issue with this movie is the reasoning for why Lily wanted to offer stepdad because he really doesn't do anything that's overly creepy and she doesn't seem overly bothered by him until later on in the film. And well, I guess I can't really say it was really my main issue because there was something else they were trying to go for by the end of this film to where it's, these characters aren't really black and white. Maybe Olivia Cook's, Amanda wasn't the only sociopath. Maybe Lily is one as well. Or maybe Lily is just a straight-up brat that she just happens to have something in common with Amanda in that way. And that maybe that's why. Maybe that is why her stepdad doesn't come across as such an asshole. Because he really isn't that much of an asshole. Really, Lily is the problem. Really, she is kind of the spoiled brat that may be giving away too much. But I, I don't know. Like, it seemed like something else needed to happen. Maybe that realization needed to happen a little bit earlier on. Because when you're not really on the side of the people that you're kind of supposed to be rooting for, or you're supposed to be on the same level with, it's hard to get behind what you're seeing. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know, Matt. Do you kind of get what I'm, what I'm, what I'm getting towards? I know this is major spoiler alert, but at the end of the movie, when she has one of her final confrontations with the the dad, and he says, "Lily, you're, you know, you're, you're just a brat. You're spoiled. All you think about is yourself. You think we're all your your maids, and we're here to clean up after you. Uh, for once in our in your life, we're gonna we're gonna cut you off, and you're gonna have to figure things out on your own." Right then, that's when I kind of realized that, oh shit, she's the problem. Did you kind of get that as well? Well, that's what I mean. That Okay, so yeah, since we're going to go, since, since we're going there, we're going there. Okay, look. So Lily, as it turns out, is is really and truly the scheming wench the entire for the entire film. Um, you're, you're led to, I, I, you know what? And again... I'll even get a credit in the writing, in the physical di- writing of the dialogue that you're, you're not led to believe, but you want to believe that Lily is being led by Amanda, not Amanda led by Lily. And that's what's actually happening. The thing is, is that, um, because Amanda simply doesn't care, she, she finds solace in the ability 
for her in, in her ability to not care and to counteract the evil machinations, as it turns out, of Lily. Again, the movie that that and that is the big problem for me, especially as you get to the penultimate moment where Lily. Uh, 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 fuck it. We're, we're here. We're staying here. So Lily is the one who actually kills Mark and frames Amanda for it. But she tells her. She tells her and then feigns, see, she feigns crying. And I think that's the key is that Lily, Lily is able to, um, Lily is the psychopath. She, she's beyond sociopathic. She's psychopathic because she knows what it takes to manipulate. She then gets rid of those that she cannot manipulate. And, even with the end of the movie, right? Because Amanda tells her, you know, all the shit that's happening to her. And what does she say to Tim? She, I, I didn't read it. Yeah, yeah, the letter. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's cool. It's inter- Maybe it's one of those movies that watching it a second time is better. I mean, I still give this one a four point two five out of five. I mean, I thought it was well written. It's a well made movie. Character work was fantastic. It's just I, I just can't tell. If it was a filmmaking issue or if it was artistically left that way so that they weren't forcing this characteristic on the audience. I mean, in that case, regardless, I'm still giving it a 4.25 out of 5. I thought it was still a very good movie. Right on, right on. And what would you give it again? A 3.25. Okay, cool. Mainly because I'm, be- I'm, I'm being harder on its cleverness. Um, I, because I do like the characterizations. I think the character, the, the characters really are the strongest aspect. I think it's, the, but I think it's the utilization of the characters. I think it's the way they hit the beats in the story. The story itself, I think, um, is the problem. I think it's the execution of the, I guess, I guess twist, if you want to call it that. Um, it's the execution of the, our, my air quotes twist over here to the end where you get the reveal that Lily's actually the piece of shit um, that I just feel like it, it was, it, it was not executed well. Yeah. So, but I still liked it. I mean, I still liked it. It was definitely a lot of fun. And again, huge, you know, huge fan of Anton Yelchin. Very sad. He is no longer with us. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well then that leaves us with Pacific Rim Uprising. Jake, your father always said he wanted you to be a pilot. He said a lot of things. I'm not a hero like he was. The kaiju, they're going to come back. I'm not going to be stuck waiting for someone else to come save my ass. Cadets, you better gear up. This is the way the world ends. How'd they get into our world? Someone let them in. Someone from our world. Who is that? Definitely not one of ours. Let's do this. This is your chance to make things right. We're gonna need more pilots. We have them. There are pilots we remember as legends. They started out like us. This is our time to make a difference. Do you understand? Jaeger pilots! Do you understand? One way to find out. That's what I'm talking about! Gonna be a long day. What do we do? 
We fight! Alright, we got a 2018 American science fiction film directed by Stephen S. DeKnight. Uh, and, um, yeah, movie is, uh, stars John Boyega, Scott Eastwood, Jing Tian, uh, Kaylee, uh, Spaney, Charlie Day, um, and what we have here is the whole reason why if you don't bring back the cast and crew of the first film, you don't make a second film. That's that's what this movie is. It takes place ten years after the first movie. Uh, we have the son of... Um, oh, good lord. I can't even think of his name. Idris, Idris Elba. Thank you, Idris <laughs> Elba. Yeah, son of Idris Elba's character, played by John Boyega. Um... He is, uh, you know, good for nothing scamp who strips the old Jaeger parts and like sells them on the black market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Gets busted and he has to, um, he has a choice of either going to prison or training the new crew. Um, so naturally he chooses the latter because, <laughs> you know, they had to make a movie. Um, and then of course he teams up with, uh, Nate Lambert, uh, played by Scott Eastwood, who, uh, was his old partner back in the day. Um, and they are basically training these new guys, but they're, it's kind of like, uh, Paul Bunyan, right? Where are, are we going to stick with the axes or are we going to move to the chainsaws? Well, here we have the Jaegers, or we have these new drone kind of things that they got going on that are supposed to be newer and cooler and better. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... Shenanigans ensue, and the kaiju return. Shenanigans further ensue, and the movie hits the same beats as the first movie. Uh, it just not as well and not as hard. Um, this movie is, uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro was a producer. Uh, he did not direct. He was not involved in the story. Um, Charlie Hunnam's not in this movie. Obviously, Idris Elba's not in the movie. You know, uh, Ron Perlman's not in the movie. All these kinds of, um, nods to the original film are barely recognizable. Uh, you know, even your portentous cameo appearances of people who, who, from the first film or whatever, none of that stuff works. It's all based on this new story. And the thing is, is that it plays out like a fucking episode of Power Rangers, um, but without, without heart. Um, it's just not good. This is why you don't make movies when you can't bring back the original cast. Um, and I get that there wasn't a whole lot of the original cast kind of more or less left at the, at the end of the movie, but there was still a way, there, there still would have been ways to do it. Um, one of the things that made the original, the, the first movie so great was that, um, it was like, oh, wow, is this, what an original movie? Well, true. Fans of Gundam, uh, anime and things of that nature are like, what? You've never heard of Mech Warrior? I, well, you know what? The, the vast majority of the theater going public really hadn't. Uh, 
So you had this really great, fun story uh, that was likable to a great degree, despite having its flaws as well. And instead of building on that, you 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 instead undermine it by having the, by having villain of the week thrown in there instead of actually trying to grow the series and oh well let's just uh, you know we can't have more of the same let's try and change it up until we just give you more of the same anyway well <laughs> you know I get that B plots are necessary, but if your B plot makes no makes no difference to the to the whole aspect of the movie, why even bother to have it? It just shows you how weak your film is. And the B plot, by the way, is the fucking drones. All right, they they make no difference to the ultimate following for the whole movie. Um, so. It just, I didn't like it, guys. I get what they were trying to do. And, and, you know, I, I can appreciate that the, let's say, boys aged nine to 14 are really gonna like this movie. Um, I appreciate that they continually tried to keep the worldwide aspect of it. Um, you know, despite the ring of fire, <laughs> they tried to, they tried to blow up. Um, I like the multicultural aspect still, but this just was flawed from the get go and they, sh they should have just not made it. Uh, I give this one a two. I didn't like it. You probably won't either unless you're Johnny and you'll probably just like it out of spite. <laughs> or unless you're Tim and you give it a three. How you doing, Nate? It's Ranger Lambert. Are you having a laugh? Well, this is a military base. You remember how that works? Ranger Pentecost. And you must be Amara Namani. Yes, sir. Ranger, sir. Well, let's get you squared away. Oh, and uh, try not to steal anything while you're here. Did that haircut just call you Pentecost? As in badass stacker Pentecost, pilot of Coyote Tango, hero of basically the whole world. It's just a name. Yeah, a really cool name. Because I thought the action sequences were pretty exciting and well thought out and choreographed. And I thought those well thought out and exciting action sequences just made up for the overacting and the forced plot connections to the first film. I mean, if I had to keep hearing about Idris Elba... I mean, seriously, when I say that Idris Elba's character was there in spirit, he was there in fucking full-fledged spirit because it seemed like they just kept mentioning him and he just was popping up everywhere. And I gave Pacific Rim the first one, I think I said between a 3.5 and a 4, so probably 3.75-ish. Um, and I also kept calling Charlie Hunnam Charlie Hoonan. Not just once, by accident, but I was re-listening to the review earlier today, and I kept calling him Charlie Hoonan. Uh, luckily, Charlie Hoonan was in this movie, and neither was Charlie Hunnam, but we did get John Boyega and uh, Charlie Day and the British crazy scientist dude reprise their role, his role. The first movie, though, I thought is pretty unmemorable. Uh, without the giant robot monster cool fight scenes. So outside of... The event itself, the event of these monsters appearing in the world or in our world, um, we really didn't need to force connect 
these new characters to the old characters from the first movie. There was just no point to it. We could have just had new characters and maybe accolades towards the, the, the characters who fought bravely could be made or you know read in a newspaper or seen on a billboard or something somewhere that the characters acknowledge with just a moment. That's all that this movie needed to tie these two films together. We didn't need Idris Elba's son, you know, just because Idris Elba was black and John Boyega was black. They could have came up with something else. It was just fucking lazy. Oh, I'm the son, therefore I have to fill my father's shoes. Oh, I have to train this little girl because she's a little scrap girl who... This little girl is not as ridiculous. Her acting, her performance, her name is not as ridiculous as uh, as Kurt Yeager. Yeah, Mark Wahlberg from the last two Transformers movies. You know, that stuff is not as ridiculous as Kurt Yeager, but the idea, her characteristics, you know, why she is in this movie is ridiculous. And it just seems so pointless because they had the first movie to go off of. And the the action fight sequences are so good in this movie. Choreography is great. And the look of them, are, it's, they're just so fucking cool. It, it was exciting. But god damn it, they went full on Independence Day resurgence with this movie. Not just in the way that the movie looks more fantastical, it looks cleaner, it's more colorful, the color palette is obviously different than the first film, at least of what I remember, the color palette looks a lot cleaner. But also, they end the movie just like Independence Day. Spoiler alert! Basically, the exact same line is said. They're basically being threatened by the bad guy or by a transmission, whatever it is. In the case of Pacific Rim Uprising, the monsters will return. And then one of the characters, one of the lead characters goes and basically looks directly right into the camera at the audience and says, we're going to take the fight to the aliens. Something along that line. But it's the ID4 resurgenced this movie. Ah. It's a sequel to Guillermo del Toro movie. It's okay. It's okay if there are more than a handful of similarities to the movie. Just, I just don't get it. It was a popcorn movie. Great action, great fight scenes. Uh, There's just a lot of other crap to laugh at, unfortunately. Three out of five, Pacific Rim Uprising for moi. Outstanding. All right. Well, next week's movies are going to be Unsane and Love, Simon. We're also going to have another little copycat throwdown for next week where we're going to compare 2001's Lara Croft Tomb Raider to 2018's Tomb Raider. And I think without further ado, we are now ready for the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! Are you trying to seduce me? I wouldn't dream of seducing you, Alexander. I wouldn't insult your intelligence with anything as trivial as seduction. But uh, I would love to fuck you. Well, you know, I have to admit that I appreciate your directness, Daryl, and I will try and be as direct and honest with you as I possibly can be. Uh, I think... No, I, I am positive that you are the most unattractive man I have ever met in my entire life. You know, in the short time we've been together, you have demonstrated every loathsome characteristic of the male personality and even discovered a few new ones. You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, you're morally reprehensible, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. You know, you're not even interesting enough to make me sick. Um... 
you like to be on the top or the bottom? Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to John Boyega, I get to say this. There's a difference between living somewhere and being part of somewhere. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.